Well, it's great to be with you all this evening for another time of fellowship, prayer, and Bible study. And as we pick up from where we left off from two weeks ago, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of James. James chapter 3. Tonight will be our third lesson in the sixth section contained in the book of James, which deals specifically with the subject of how Christians are to model Christ-like conduct through speech. As we prepare to dive into this passage that we'll be studying for the remainder of our time together tonight, let's begin, as we've done over the past two weeks, by reading the totality of what James writes in this section of the letter. So, can I get a volunteer to read the first half of this section, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3? Can I get a volunteer for that? Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. Samantha's going to take that one, and then another volunteer after she reads verse 6 to read verses 7 through 12. Joanne's going to take that. Thank you, ladies. So let me um, give you guys the floor now. Samantha, whenever you're turned to James 3, go ahead and get those first six verses read. And then Joanne, as soon as she finishes with 6, just read verses 7 to 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless curse, people. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening of both fresh and salt water? Can a big tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Very good. Well, I want to say thank you to both of y'all for reading those verses for us. And I think one of y'all read through the uh, New American Standard Version, and I don't know what translation you had, Joanne. It was very close to mine. For the listener, I'll be making reference with the New American Standard translation throughout the course of tonight's lesson, and grateful for those who read out of their respective English translations as well. As we've noted over the past two lessons. This is the sixth section of James's letter. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3 is the sixth section contained in the book of James. And this section provides us with four warnings about the temporal and eternal significance of human speech. In our study of verse 1, the, the very first lesson that we devoted to this particular section in James, we observed a warning about the tongue's Condemning power. You should see an overview of the outline of this section contained in your handouts. A warning about the tongue's condemning power from James 3 1. 
And that verse particularly had reference to those who would serve in positions of spiritual leadership and spiritual authority in the local church. In our study of that verse, we were confronted with the reality that those who teach God's Word will be held to a higher degree of accountability before their holy Creator. As such, in studying that verse together, we discovered that nobody should ever enter into the role of Bible teacher with a flippant or nonchalant attitude. Rather, on the contrary, Bible teachers should be those who have been called and gifted by God to teach, and they should likewise be tested and affirmed as competent and equipped to teach by sound Bible teachers, the godly men within the local church. Although this has become increasingly rare in our current day, Christians would certainly do well to heed the instruction, heed the warnings provided by James at the outset of this sixth section in his letter. That was the nutshell of what we learned from James 3 and verse 1. That brings us to the second warning that we observe from chapter 3. And that particular warning dealt with the tongue's controlling influence. The tongue's controlling influence. And of course, that lesson spanned from verse 2 of chapter 3 on to the first half of verse 5. As developed by James in each of those verses, verse 2, the first half of verse 5 in chapter 3, we learn that a distinguishing mark of spiritual maturity is the ability for one to control their tongue. According to James, if a person is not able to exercise control over how they use their tongue, then at least two realities will be true about their life. We saw it in the text from our previous lesson. First reality, the one who cannot exercise control over how they use their tongue will inevitably be controlled by their tongue. Just like a bit can control the direction of a horse, just like a rudder can control the direction of a ship, so also can the tongue control the course or the direction of a person's life who cannot exercise control over that tongue. It's the first reality that we learned about from our previous lesson. Second reality that we learned about from the previous lesson was this. The one who cannot exercise control over their tongue will not be able to exercise control over the multitude of sinful lusts and desires that plague our humanity. In this sense, as we saw from that study, the tongue can boast over its ability to steer and direct the trajectory of a person's life. In final analysis, much of our battle and sanctification, according to James and taking James' instruction in conjunction with the rest of the Bible, much of our sanctification... It all boils down to our ability to control how we use our tongue. If I could quote from Stephen Lawson here, show me a person's ability to control their tongue and I'll be able to tell you much about what their lifestyle looks like. You see, there is an interrelatedness between the lifestyle pattern of an individual and their ability to control how they use their tongue, how they speak on a regular basis. Each of these observations from the first four and a half verses of James 3 brings us to the third warning that James includes at this point in his letter. From the second half of verse 5 to the end of verse 8, James provides his original audience with a warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. A warning about the tongue's corrupting 
nature to help us work through the three and a half verses that pertain to this third warning in chapter 3. I've chosen to segment this particular warning into three subheadings. So you'll see those subheadings broken down in your handouts tonight. It's going to structure what James says in regard to this warning, the warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. Notice those subheadings. From the second half of verse 5 to the first half of verse 6, we're going to see James illustrate the destructive character of the untamed tongue. The destructive character of the untamed tongue. That's second half of verse 5 to the first half of verse 6. After we take the time to analyze this first illustration provided by James, we're going to see James transition into the second half of verse 6 by explaining to us the the, the readers of this letter some 2,000 years after it was originally written, we're going to see James explain the damning consequences of the untamed tongue. How's that for a subheading title? The damning consequences of the untamed tongue. Really just focusing on what James says in the second half of verse 6. And lastly, in verses 7 and 8 of this section, we're going to conclude our analysis of this third warning by looking to see what James has to say in regard to the desperate condition of the untamed tongue. So, here are the subheadings again. We have the destructive character of the untamed tongue, second half of verse 5, first half of verse 6. We have the damning consequences of the untamed tongue, second half of verse 6. And lastly, we have the desperate condition of the untamed tongue. That's going to be verse 7 and verse 8 of James 3. So with this outline at the forefront of our minds by way of introduction, let's begin our survey of the destructive character of the untamed tongue by turning our attention to the second half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6. Notice those verses again with me in your copy of God's Word. Again, I'll be reading my scripture from the New American Standard Bible. James writes the following, second half of verse 5, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. As we come to the middle of verse 5, we find a strikingly Jewish flavor undergirding the instruction that James provides right here at the beginning of this third warning contained in this section. In verses 5 and 6, James is exhorting his first century Jewish readers to consider a striking parallel between a fire that can destroy an entire forest and the disastrous ramifications that stem from a tongue that has not been tamed. Some commentators go so far as to note that the second half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6 really functions as a proverb. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament... The Proverbs are regarded as wisdom literature. They're regarded as highly practical words of advice for godly living or godly behavior in a fallen world. And as Jewish Christians, the original readers of this letter, and James, the one who originally wrote this letter, they would have been, in, they would have been intimately familiar with the book of Proverbs. They would have been very familiar with this idea of wisdom literature. And James would have been well aware of the practical value that the Proverbs have for cultivating wise behaviors in a fallen world, particularly as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So, James constructs his own proverb, as it were, in this series of verses in order to offer his readers with counsel, with godly wisdom 
about the destructive character of the untamed tongue. And how does James go about illustrating the destructive character of an untamed tongue? How does he strive to really implant in the minds of his readers this godly wisdom, this biblical counsel for how they should honor Christ in a fallen world as his people? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James likens the destruction caused by an untamed tongue to the destruction caused to a forest by a small fire. You see, just like a small fire can bring about complete destruction of a large forest, so also can something as small as the tongue bring about severe destruction in the lives of others. Let me just give you two real-world examples to demonstrate how this is the case. Some of you here may be familiar with both of these real-world examples. They're from the annals of world history within the last 200 years. The first example that I'm going to share is going to be in regard to how a small fire can wreak tremendous havoc on a surrounding area. It's going to really correspond well with uh, this illustration or this proverb that James uses about fire. We're actually going to look at a real-world example of a fire that brought about great devastation. Second example that we're going to turn to, second real-world illustration that I'm going to provide, is regard to how an untamed tongue can wreak tremendous havoc on a person's life. So, with that in mind, let's turn to the first example that I want to provide you with. And I, I can't recall if I provided you with the specifics of this example in the handout, so you're really going to have to pay attention if I didn't. Example number one. Hopefully you'll stay awake for this part of the sermon. Uh, when we get into the text later on, you can die off. But I, I think you'll be interested here. First uh, example or first illustration here. Most American historians, you look at the totality of American history, most American historians would say that the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 is one of the most devastating wildfires to ever occur in the United States. Between October 8th and October 10th, 1871, in a span of less than 72 hours, nearly four square miles of downtown Chicago was destroyed by a wildfire. Has anybody ever heard of the great Chicago fire? You know, some of you guys have your hands up, some of you don't. It's all good, you're gonna learn about it right now. Four square miles downtown Chicago, destroyed by a wildfire in less than three days, less than 72 hours. During that brief time period, it's estimated that more than 100,000 people lost their homes in that, fi in that fire. Some 20,000 buildings were destroyed beyond the point of repair, and hundreds lost their lives. What was the cause of this devastating wildfire? Was it just a, a, a massive outbreak of fire that resulted in a, a good chunk of downtown Chicago being reduced to ash and rubble? According to first-hand testimony, the fire began by virtue of a cow knocking over a lantern in a barn. Think about that, my friends. Something as small as the flame in a lantern resulted in one of the most devastating wildfires ever recorded as happening on American soil. Little bitty lantern flame. 100,000 people losing homes. 20,000 buildings destroyed. Hundreds of lives lost. My friends, it's stories like this. Real world example from American history. 
that punctuates what James writes in the second half of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. A small fire can produce great and devastating consequences. That brings us to the second real-world example that I wanted to share with you, and it's this specific example that pertains to James's metaphor of likening the untamed tongue to fire. So how does the untamed tongue correspond with fire? Well, I think you guys are going to be really familiar with this real-world example, because this real-world example pertains to arguably the most evil man who's lived on the face of this earth over the past century, man by the name of Adolf Hitler. You may have heard of him before. There may not be a better example of illustrating the damage caused by an untamed tongue than what was carried out by Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany during the earliest years and really into the end of World War II. Shortly after being named the Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Hitler established the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. How's that for a name? The Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. It's one of Adolf Hitler's first things that he formed after being appointed as Chancellor in 1933. By Hitler's own admission in his autobiographical manifesto, I can't pronounce the name of it because it's in German, but in his autobiographical manifesto, Hitler said that the purpose of creating this particular institution, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment Propaganda, he created that institution so that he could control and direct every detail of news and information that circulated throughout Germany. In doing so, Hitler was able to manipulate the common people into believing whatever his Nazi regime wanted to impress upon the masses. You see, if you control the news, you can really control the narrative in a nation. That's exactly what Hitler knew, and that's exactly what Hitler did when he was appointed to the highest level of authority in early 20th century Nazi Germany. As we know from the testimony of world history, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda was used to spread an abundance of lies and slander about a multitude of subjects. Let me just give you a few. Hitler insisted that Germany was the victim of an unjust treaty of Versailles, the treaty formed at the conclusion of World War I. Hitler said that Nazi got the short end of the stick, which is a complete lie, based on Nazis' contributions to World War I. Nazi Germany, they got kind of off a little easy, you could say. At least some historians would argue that to be the case. But Hitler establishes the... Not, he establishes the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. What are we going to say? We are the, we, we are the um, result of political injustice. We have been unjustly dealt with by the rest of the world. Let's get that circulating throughout the country. Another piece of false information he got circulated. The, the placement of Jewish people in concentration camps was merely to provide living and employment opportunities. Kid you not, many people in Germany actually believed that the Jews in concentration camps were just being housed and put to work. That's what Hitler wanted Germany to believe. How about this one? Members of the non-Aryan race were subhuman. And as a result, they need to be 
dealt with, experimented on, and in some cases, many cases, put to death. So think about that. You have some of the most heinous, slanderous words propagated by a madman, a wicked earthly ruler. And what did it lead to? World War II, the Holocaust, and to this day, many disastrous ideologies that continue. We saw it fleshed out here just within the past week in that shooting in Buffalo. Man who fell in love with the manifesto that I referred to that was written by Adolf Hitler, went and shot 13 people in the name of these ideologies that Hitler espoused during the early portion of the 20th century. I know I've used a very extreme example for this particular illustration that James is providing, but I pray that in doing so that James's point is abundantly clear here. There should be no doubt about what James is trying to teach his original readers and us by extension. The untamed tongue can be just as devastating as a fire that's allowed to burn uncontrollably. The untamed tongue is just like a spark that's been inflamed by human depravity, and as a result, it's capable of destroying anything or anyone in its path. My friends, I pray that this reality would cause us as followers of Jesus Christ to be very careful and very thoughtful about how we use and govern our patterns of speech in this life. We need to be very, very careful in how we speak to others and about others. The consequences of our failure to do so can simply be devastating, just like a wildfire can be devastating. Now, before we move on to address the second subheading that is in conjunction with what James is teaching in this section of his letter, I just want to briefly comment on the final clause contained in the first half of verse 6. It's a very disputed clause. It's the clause, the very world of iniquity. What does James mean when he says that the tongue is the very world of iniquity? Well, in making preparations for this lesson, I found John Gill's commentary to be especially helpful in making sense of what James is going for here when he says that the tongue is the very world of iniquity. Listen to what Gill has to say about this phrase, and I'm pretty sure this is in your handout. So if you have your handouts in front of you, which looks like you all do, feel free to follow along as I read from Gill. Here's a direct quote. Gill says, As the world is full of things and full of sin... For it lies in wickedness, so also is the tongue full of iniquity. There is a world of iniquity contained in the sinful exercise of the tongue. Indeed, it cannot well be said how much sin is in and done by the tongue or occasioned by the tongue. First and foremost, the tongue is the principal source of blasphemy against God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The tongue also produces cursing of men and has the ability to bring about condemnation upon oneself of a multitude of profane and dreadful oaths. And for the unbeliever, Gill continues, their tongue often produces obscene, filthy, angry, wrathful, and unchaste words. With their tongues come forth an abundance of lies, flatteries, reproaches, backbitings, and gossips. It is therefore, Gill concludes, it is therefore true that the tongue is fire and the wicked world is fuel to it. End quote. 
Upon reflecting on Gill's commentary on this portion of verse 6, I can't help but think about those sinful categories that the Apostle Paul notes in Galatians 5.20 with respect to speech that's carried out by those who are, who are, as a habitual pattern of life, committing the deeds of the flesh. So, as you guys may know, in, in that portion of Galatians 5, you have Paul set forth the deeds of the flesh, and he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. And if you look at the deeds of the flesh, there are several lifestyle patterns, categories of behavior mentioned by Paul that directly pertain to speech patterns that are, that are being carried out by somebody who does not have control as a habitual pattern of their life over their tongue. Enmities is one of those lifestyle patterns that Paul refers to. Strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions are all included by Paul. And of course, all of those categories, all those behaviors, all those lifestyle practices... Those are said to be carried out by those who are walking in the flesh. So as the people of God, just again echoing what James has said up to this point at the uh, second half of verse 5 and the first half of verse 6, echoing what John Gill has just said, and of course what Paul likewise echoes in Galatians 5, as God's people, we have a fundamental responsibility to guard our tongues at all costs and to exercise self-control over how we speak on a regular basis. So until our Lord returns or calls us home to glory, my prayer and challenge for all of us is that we would be committed to doing everything in our power to be faithful to this most important endeavor of controlling and taming our tongues. So that's the destructive character of the untamed tongue. That's second half of verse 5, first half of verse 6. I want us now to turn to the second half of verse 6, and that brings us now to our second subheading for tonight's lesson. It's the damning consequences of the untamed tongue. What are the damning consequences of the untamed tongue, as noted by James in the second half of verse 6? We'll just start by reading the text, and we will break it down from there. James writes, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So the first thing that I want to note about the second half of verse 6 is that James is using a literary device called hyperbole to emphasize the drastic consequences that can enter into a person's life who does not exercise control over their pattern of speech. If I could say it differently... In the second half of verse 6, James is intentionally using the strongest possible language to describe the severity of an untamed tongue, the damning consequences that stem from an untamed tongue. As I mentioned just moments ago regarding the first half of verse 6, the second half of verse 6, really that whole verse, is arguably the most difficult in all of James's book to translate and to understand from the original Greek to the English language. Why is that the case? Well, if you look at verse 6, particularly this second half, in the original language, there are five nouns included. There's two verbs. And the structure of the sentence, the way this sentence is put together by James right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, it's really worded in such a way to 
make the reader have some questions potentially about how each noun is modified or clarified by the verbs that are found in this text. You have far more nouns included than verbs, and in Greek that can make reading the text a little bit difficult. You guys heard me before the lesson, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm very thankful, though, that I have an abundance of resources at my disposal to help me make sense of the Word of God. Lord willing, I'll continue to grow in my knowledge of Greek in the years to come. But for now, I'm very dependent upon the insights that were provided by Dr. Tom Pennington in his commentary on this section of the book of James. So I want to provide you with a paraphrase of what Dr. Pennington had to say about his interaction with the original Greek and how it's fleshed out into English and my prayer is that after I provide you with this paraphrase from Dr. Pennington, we'll be able to better understand how James is using this second half of verse 6 to amplify his warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. So I'm going to read a paraphrase rendition from Dr. Pennington's sermon on this portion of James. I think it'll be very helpful for us as we seek to understand what James is saying here. So here's a paraphrase from Pennington. The second half of verse 6 is one of the most difficult verses in all of James to translate into English. In a sort of staccato fashion, Pennington notes, James gives us five nouns and two verbs. In doing so, James strategically organizes the flow of the passage to develop how increasingly destructive the tongue can be. The key to interpreting this part of verse 6 is to rightly understand the meaning of the two verbs that James is using. The first of the two verbs is the word set. The more precise connotation of the term can be translated as to bring about. Moreover, the second of the two verbs that we find in the latter portion of verse 6 is defiles. And that term that James uses for defiles means to corrupt. Therefore, with this understanding of the two Greek verbs that are used in the second half of verse 6, the most likely translation is something like this. So here's Pennington's translation from the original Greek into English. He's arguing this is the more precise way of getting to the meat and potatoes of what James is writing her. And here's what he says. Among our members, the tongue brings about corruption on the entire body, and the tongue brings about fire on the course of our life, and the tongue brings about fire from hell. So, more proper English translation. Among our members, the tongue brings about the corruption on the entire body. It brings about fire on the course of our life, and the tongue brings about fire from hell. So, with that perspective in mind regarding the latter portion of verse 6, I want us to first note here, as we break down what James is saying, that there is a progression in James developing the consequences that stem from an untamed tongue. He's wanting to show that there is a linear progression of consequences that organically flow from a person who does not, as a pattern of life, exercise control over their speech. First, when considering the tongue's relationship to the rest of our physical body parts, or as James says, the members of our body, that's what he's talking about, our body parts, our physical human parts, it's the tongue that brings about our spiritual corruption. So out of your physical body parts, no physical body part that you and I possess brings about spiritual corruption more consistently than that of the tongue. 
It's precisely what our Lord Jesus Christ taught in places like Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. It's interesting that uh, James's oldest half-brother would be on the same page as he would be. Actually, it's not interesting at all. I mean, he was taught by Christ, and uh, he would have heard this many times throughout the course of his upbringing. But be that as it may, what's Jesus saying in Matthew 15, verses 1 to 11? Well, you're probably familiar with the text. In that passage uh, from Matthew's Gospel, the Jewish religious officials are coming to Jesus and his disciples, and they're being very critical of them because they're not participating in the ceremonial tradition of washing their hands before eating a meal. The Jews throughout the intertestamental period had incorporated many extra-biblical man-centered traditions that they brought on as an addendum, and in many cases, they even exalted them to a level higher than the contents that were contained in the Old Testament. So the Jewish religious leaders are coming to Christ, and they're coming to the disciples, they're saying, you guys aren't keeping all these religious traditions that we keep. How does Christ respond? Well, in response to their criticism, as we see in that passage, Christ turned around and he critiqued the Jewish religious leaders for elevating the tradition of man over the Word of God. And what did Christ say particularly? Well, if you notice in verse 11 of Matthew 15, by way of concluding his critique of those Jewish religious officials, he says the following words. Some of you may even have this memorized. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, Christ says. But it's what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles a man. Anyone ever heard that passage before? Right? Very familiar text. Well, as, as Christ notes there in Matthew 15, 11, so also is James making a similar application here in James 3, 6. James recognized that the untamed tongue has the power to spiritually corrupt a person before God. You see, it, it, it's not what we put into our bodies that brings about our spiritual defilement, but rather it's the vulgar, the vulgar, immoral, and sinful speech that proceeds from our mouths that brings about spiritual defilement before our Holy Creator. It's the frequent inability to exercise control over our pattern of speech that shows us to be spiritually corrupt, spiritually defiled before the Most High. That's the first consequence that James presents to his readers in the second half of verse 6. That brings us to the second consequence that James provides in this portion of verse 6. And it's regarding the tongue's ability to corrupt the course of a person's life. And this is largely a reiteration of what we considered together during our previous lesson. If we do not exercise control over our tongue, then our tongues have the ability to set to the rest of our lives a wildfire, as it were. You see, our tongues have the ability to destroy our lives just as a fire can destroy anything in its path if it's left to burn uncontrollably. Let me just ask you guys by a show of hands. I know you guys just got out of school, so this should be really fresh on your mind for the youth that are in here. But by a show of hands... How many of you guys know at least one person in your life, probably in your class at school, that's gotten into serious trouble by the way they've used their tongue? Let's just make it personal. I remember many times growing up, and sadly, 
because I was not a Christian until my senior year of high school. Tragically, unfortunately, many times I got into serious trouble through how I used my tongue in school. So I'm sure I can only imagine that you guys have seen that and experienced that firsthand in your specific context. Think about the ways in which the tongue, very practically, I'm speaking to all of us, of course, but you youth especially, you who are in school, you are constantly around people in your sphere of life. How many people have you seen get into serious trouble because they got caught in a lie? They told a lie that got out of hand. They couldn't keep a lid on it. You've seen that, right? How about somebody spreading harmful gossip or slander about another person? It wasn't true. It was all a lie but the damage was done. How about a racist, homophobic, or highly offensive slur? If you haven't experienced that verse, you probably see it on social media. I see it almost weekly on social media, it seems, these days. My friends, what's the point? Well, in the final analysis, if you live long enough, or if you simply walk out of your house, watch the news, check social media, don't live under a rock, so to speak. You're going to find that there are a multitude of people in this world and around you and me who get into serious trouble for how they use their tongue. And in some of the more extreme cases, their lives are just never the same afterwards. You ever think about that? That sometimes, whether you're the one who's causing the damage with your tongue or if you're on the receiving end of somebody else, whenever the damage has taken effect... It's permanent. Life's never the same afterwards. And that's what James is getting at here. If I could use James's terminology, their life has been set on fire by the use of the tongue. These are sobering consequences that we need to take into consideration tonight as taught here by James. That brings us now to the third consequence that James lists here in the second half of verse 6 that's in relation to the untamed tongue. Notice what he writes there at the very end of verse 6. The tongue is set on fire by hell. Or as stated in the paraphrase from Dr. Pennington, the tongue brings about fire from hell. It's interesting that in Greek, as James draws verse 6 to a conclusion, he's using a play on words to identify the source of the tongue's capacity to wreak havoc on a person's life. Just as the tongue sets on fire or brings about fire in our lives, so also does hell, as it were, set on fire or bring about fire to our tongues. You see, in every instance, think about this very practically, don't miss this, in every instance that our tongues are used in a sinful manner, we are in a very real sense mimicking Satan himself. Really let that sink into your soul. I was gripped by this as I was preparing this lesson. Every time we use our tongues in a sinful manner, we're mimicking Satan. Satan's the author of sin. He's the father of lies. He's the source of all wickedness. And it's through Satan's influence that the tongue is able to carry out such great potential for destruction. And as we reflect on all that James has to say about the untamed tongue... I don't think there could be any more consequence, more drastic to the fact that if I'm using my tongue, if I'm exercising a sinful pattern of speech, I'm mimicking the one who made sin possible in the first place. That is scary to think about, frankly. Like I said, 
very convicting because I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. There are ways in which I could clean up my use of the tongue. And I trust that if you're honest with yourself, there's some ways in which you could do so as well. So next time you're tempted to spread a, a lie or slander or gossip about somebody or to, you know, express an outburst of anger or to cause division in a relationship or whatever the case might be, just remember that just as the tongue sets on fire or brings about fire in our lives, well, so also does so also does hell set on fire or bring about fire to our tongues. The source of the sinful pattern of speech is not God. It's sin and, of course, by necessary extension, it's satanic. But my friends, be that as it may, I think this is a great time to remind ourselves that it's because of the reality that we never model perfect exercise or perfect self-control over our use of the tongue that we can rejoice in that God's made every provision to bridge the gap, as it were, between what He requires of us and how we ultimately live our lives. And what's the bridge? What, what's the solution that God's provided? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, this should be a reminder to us as we reflect on what James has just said here in the second half of verse 6. It should be a reminder to us of how desperately we need the gospel. Only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be forgiven of our sins committed against a holy God. Only through faith in Christ can we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we be sanctified in order that we might exercise self-control over our tongues. So, it's Christ that allows us to receive the Holy Spirit, and then it's the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with Christ and the Father that enables us to be sanctified and enables us to begin to speak and conduct ourselves in such a way that honors the God of our salvation. So even in thinking here about our failures and our shortcomings to speak in the way that God would call us to speak in His Word, we also have an opportunity as well to rejoice that God being rich in mercy because of His great love that He's lavished upon us in Christ, He not only forgives us of our sinful speech in Christ, in the Gospel, but then by the work of the triune God in sanctification, He then enables us to begin to speak as He calls us to in Scripture. So I hope that can be an encouragement to you and to me as we just think about, again, our failures and our shortcomings on the one hand in our speech pattern, but on the other hand, the riches of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. So, we've now considered the destructive character of the untamed tongue from the second half of verse 5 and first half of verse 6. We've considered the damning consequences that stem from the untamed tongue, second half of verse 6. As we prepare to bring our study to a conclusion, I now want us to examine what I've labeled the desperate condition of the untamed tongue the desperate condition of the untamed tongue. Take a look at verses 7 and 8 again with me in your copy of Scripture. James writes this, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. You see the word for right there at the beginning of verse 7. 
That word for indicates that what James has written in verses 7 and 8 is the logical conclusion of what he's just said back in verse 6. And what is his concluding thoughts in verses 7 and 8 building off of what he said in verse 6? Well, it's simply this. James is saying here that, and hopefully this is an encouragement to you, it's fundamentally impossible for sinful man to perfectly tame the tongue on this side of heaven. Did you catch that? It's fundamentally impossible for sinful man to perfectly tame the tongue on this side of heaven. Why is that encouraging? Well, James is saying that you're not alone if you're struggling with your patterns of speech. This is something that's common to all of men. Notice how James arrives at this conclusion. He didn't just pull this out of thin air. He actually roots it and grounds it in the testimony of Scripture. First, in verse 7, James says that every species in the animal kingdom can be tamed by the human race. How does he get here? Well, to solidify his argument, James utilizes each of the four categories that are used in the Genesis creation narrative to refer to the creatures of the animal kingdom. Did you see the connection? Take a look at Genesis 1.26 in light of what James writes in chapter 3 and verse 7. In Genesis 1.26, we find this testimony. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See the connection there? We have the same four categories in Genesis 1 as we do in James 3.7. We have beasts, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea. Each of those categories being explicitly referred to in Genesis 1 and also being referenced in James 3.7. So what's James getting at by making this connection? We're saying that man has subdued the totality of the animal kingdom. That's what's being communicated by James's use of the word tame. That Greek term for tame just means to exercise authority over or to rule over. And if we look at the testimony of human history from the past six to 7,000 years, from the very beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden, God has purposed for human beings to subdue, to rule over, to exercise authority over the animal kingdom. And we've seen clear evidence of how this reality has come to pass. MacArthur says the following in his commentary on this portion of James. He says, quote, The wildest, smartest, fastest, most powerful, and most elusive of creatures are subject to man's taming. Even after the fall, Noah was able to bring every kind of animal into the ark in pairs without serious incident. And although the task of Noah and his family to take care of those thousands of creatures were surely daunting in the extreme, there is no record of any of the animals attacking or harming their keepers or each other in any way. And for centuries thereafter, a major attraction in human culture has been seeing how animals such as lions, tigers, and other dangerous animals can do tricks at the command of a human trainer, end quote. You ever been to the circus before? You see elephants and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right, <laughs> under the uh, direct influence or control over the person who is in the arena. You go back to the days of the Roman Empire, 
You had scenarios in which people would get into the Roman Colosseum with animals and they would, sometimes they would fight the animals and try to survive the animals. Other times they would actually exercise command and authority over the animals. And of course, MacArthur notes back to the day of Noah, the ability for man to subdue and exercise that dominion and authority over the animals. And even today, there's not a single animal that rules over man today. Sure, we may get harmed by an animal if we stumble upon them at the wrong place in the wrong time. Man is the domineering influence. We are the preeminent species in the world. And that's by God's sovereign design. That's what James is getting at here in verse 7. Based on the testimony of human history, based on what James is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the creatures of this world have been subdued by the human race. That's a mighty feat that's been accomplished by humanity. But yet, did you catch the contrast that James brought about in verses 7 and 8? Though it's certainly remarkable that man has been able to exercise dominion, to subdue the totality of the animal kingdom. In verse 8, it said that humanity, despite having all dominion over the animal kingdom, man has yet to exercise dominion over the tongue. How do we make sense of that? We mean to say, James, that we can control a bear and not this little member of our body, to use his terminology, this little part of our body called the tongue. We're able to tame a lion and a bear and all these powerful animals, but not the tongue. Well, it's exactly what James is saying. He, he provides us with his clear declaration in the second part of verse 8. Sinful humanity can't perfectly tame the tongue because the tongue is a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. That's why no one is able to accomplish this feat. You see, it's much harder to exercise control over a tongue that's the source of restless evil and full of deadly poison than it is to go out and to exercise dominion over a shark. It's just, that's, that's what James is saying here. Let that sink into your soul. It's harder to tame this little tongue in our mouths than it is to tame the most powerful creatures in the animal kingdom. What an illustration. What, an, what, a, what a point that James is making here in his letter. Let me break down those terms. Restless evil, full of deadly poison. What's James going for here? Well, the Greek term that James uses for restless is the same word that was translated unstable in verse 8 of chapter 1 of his letter. The word picture here that James is using, and I don't think, I'm not even going to say you'll recall from the lesson on James 1.8, it's been about two years ago, uh, but trust me here, back when we studied James 1.8, we talked about this word picture as well. What James is going for here, talking about restless evil, that little word restless, it's a word picture of literally an animal in a cage that's just prowling back and forth in that cage. Eyes on the one to whom has put it in there. And like an unstable animal, the tongue is, as it were, prowling about to and fro at all times. It's waiting for an opportunity to spring free and to pounce on the one who has attempted to keep it subdued. So in this respect, just as we would with a caged wild animal, we must always remain aware of our tongue's capability 
If we allow ourselves to keep our guard down for even the smallest amount of time, that's all it will take for our tongues to spring forth sinful speech. On the other hand, notice what James writes again in reference to the tongue being full of deadly poison as communicated right there at the tail end of verse 8. This is a word picture that presents us with a deadly snake. Think of your tongues as a deadly snake, a, a poisonous snake that's ready to just infiltrate venom into the lives of others. James is likely, many commentators know, James is likely uh, borrowing this word picture from texts like Psalm 140, verse 3, when he um, initially wrote this letter. And I'll read that text for you. I think it really gets to the heart of what he's trying to communicate here by word picture. Psalm 140, verse 3 says this, Sinful men sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of a viper is under their lips. I don't have this in my notes. Many of you guys are aware of Romans 3, verses 10 down to about verse 18. Some graphic word pictures about the, the nature of human depravity. And one of those illustrations is about the, the lips of sinful man being um, poisonous. The mouth being a source of venom. That's what James is getting at here in 3.8. Your tongue is just like a snake ready to just bite and spread venom, spread poison into the lives of others. Therefore, you and me both need to be very, very cognizant, very, very aware of the danger that can occur if we let our guards down, even for small lapses in our lives. It doesn't take much off the cuff, say a harmful comment. Spread a white lie or a rumor. Say a hateful remark about somebody who nobody deserves to be talked to in that way. It can happen to any of us. That's what James is getting at here. So, whether speaking in reference of an unbeliever or speaking in reference to those of us who've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the application from this portion of tonight's lesson is still the same. Even for the believer, just as the case with the unbeliever, we're going to engage in a lifetime of battling the temptations to use our tongue in a manner that's dishonoring to the trying God, and that's harmful to those in our lives. So I just want to leave you with two thoughts before we look at our questions for group discussion tonight. Two closing thoughts. First thought's going to be for the believer, and the second thought is going to be for the unbeliever. For the believer, if you're here tonight and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're listening to this lesson and you are in Christ, this is for you. I want you to know that it's impossible for you or for me to perfectly control the tongue in this life. So, on the one hand, be encouraged. Whenever you do fall short in this area, you're not alone. You're facing a struggle that's proper and that is common to all humanity. And as a believer, you can know without a shadow of a doubt, as we've learned in previous lessons here within this section and in the book of James as a whole, that God is faithful. 
to bring the work that he's began in you to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to make you into the likeness of his own son through the power of the Holy Spirit in the sanctifying process that you and I will undergo until Christ returns or calls us home. So be encouraged, though you fall short here, believer, though I fall short here, God will be faithful to improve your pattern of speech over the course of your life. So rest in that reality. Fight against the urge. Be on guard against the temptations to use your tongue in a sinful capacity. But nevertheless, be encouraged that God will help you grow in this area as He sanctifies you. Second word of concluding application now. For the unbeliever, if you're here tonight, I know everybody here tonight pretty well. Um, I would hope and pray that everybody here tonight is in Christ, but um, only you know in your heart of hearts, where you're at before the Lord. And of course, listeners, well, if you're listening to this and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this closing application is for you. Since it's utterly impossible for the human tongue to be perfectly tamed in this life, and since faith in Jesus Christ is the only way for a person to even be able to begin to exercise control over the tongue, not perfectly, but in a trajectory of your life, since it's impossible to be perfect in this area, as James has taught, and since only followers of Christ can even see victory over their pattern of speech. You have no hope, unbeliever. You have no hope in and of yourself. In fact, if left to yourself, your life will be filled with disaster. You may even see it right now in your own life. You know your relationships are topsy-turvy, high and low, you gossip behind people's back, you slander people, you do it on a regular basis, you lie, you exalt yourself through self-righteous pride. All those things that Paul says in Galatians 5.20 are deeds of the flesh. Maybe you're listening tonight and say, you know, that's me, Dewey. I don't use my tongue in a way honoring to the Lord. In fact, I sound just as bad as people who come out and, and say, I don't follow Jesus. I, I sound just like the rest of the world. Well, that's you. I want to leave you with encouragement. I want to leave you with hope. That, yes, it is true right now, you're outside of Christ, you're on your way to eternal judgment and hell, and you're, you're going to have a terrible life in terms of your relationships with others if you don't have Christ ruling your life. But there is encouragement, there is hope in this promise, that if you would surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by faith, you'll not only receive forgiveness of your sins committed with your tongue and forgiveness of all the sins you would ever commit, past, present, or future, but you'll also begin, as I mentioned regarding the believer, you'll also begin to speak in a way that you know God calls you to speak in, and in doing so, you'll be able to see victory over this particular area as God sanctifies you throughout the course of your Christian walk. I speak from personal experience. For the first 17 years and some change of my life, I, I was terrible with my tongue. I cussed, I lied, I gossiped, I exalted myself. But God, being rich in mercy, He saved me. And in saving me, when I believed in Jesus, He began to change my life, He began to change my pattern of speech. And though I'm not perfect, and though I continue to fall short each and every day, He, by His grace, has allowed me to grow here 
And I know the testimony of every believer in this room and throughout the world for that matter. They've seen evidence of God helping them grow in this area as well. So if you don't know Jesus, before we bring tonight's lesson to a conclusion, I just want to plead with you to trust Him. Repent of your sins. Trust in His life, death, and resurrection and His perfect ability to not only save you from the penalty of your sins, which is eternal judgment and hell, but also to save you from the power of sin, which is the process that we call progressive sanctification. So with that being said, brings us to the conclusion of tonight's lesson, and as such, we're going to begin our time of group discussion. So at the bottom of page two in your handouts, and I know the font was really small this week, so a small every week, who am I kidding? But it was especially small this week uh, because I had a lot that I wanted to put on the handout. So if you have your magnifying glass, go ahead and get that out and look down right there at the bottom of page two. We're going to work through these questions together, starting with the first one. Question one. When considering the destructive character of the tongue, what are some manifestations of sinful speech that you believe to be most common in our current society? And how are these particular expressions of sinful speech harmful or destructive to others? So, just, I mean, adults, obviously, this is directed to you just as much as it's directed to me, but I really want to hear from the youth here because I think everybody here tonight is in uh, public school, or if they're not in public school, they're on a sports team or on a dance team, or they've got, they've got unbelieving friends and family members who they spend time with, and they, they've seen this play out in their lives. So you youth can really relate to this well, as can we adults, but let's think about this. If you, if you were to just take a, a survey of the landscape of your sports team, your high school, what you see on social media, what you see modeled in your unbelieving family members and friends' lives, what are, in your convictions, the more frequent manifestations of sinful speech patterns? What do you tend to see? Oh, come on, I've got one right off the top of my head. That's right. That that's that's the you know what? If I had to guess at y'all's age, that's probably the most frequent one, just because at your age, people think it's cool to do that. Um, you know what I mean? That that was the thing. We want to cuss because it makes us sound tough and cool and um, for youth, especially in public school, that, that's probably the most common. At least it was when I was your age. What other ones do you see? Sarcasm? Well, I wouldn't say sarcasm is sinful. Uh, God is sarcastic in many places in Scripture. Uh, so sarcasm can be a powerful teaching tool if used correctly. It can be sinful. It can be condescending. It's condescending. It's pride. But sometimes sarcasm can actually be like the appropriate way to teach somebody a lesson if the context or situation calls for it. It's commonly used to be condescending, but also confusing intentionally. And God's not the author of confusion, right. so it's intended to cause confusion. Right. It's good. So I, did you have your hand up earlier that you were going to say? Were you going to say cussing? No, inappropriate talk. If you know what I mean. Yeah. 
inappropriate jesting. We're going to get to that next week. Um, we're going to get to that next week. Paul talks about that as well. So we'll probably be in a little bit of Ephesians and Colossians, uh, some cross-references. But yeah, it's great. Uh, any other ones? So we talked cussing, um, condescending, say arrogant or prideful speech, uh, coarse jesting, inappropriate jesting, uh, probably sexual in nature. Um, this, this tends to be what what that looks like in our society. I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me was just follow your heart, that kind of speech. Mm. Which, I mean, there's nothing wrong so with self-help, that. that's, no, that's perfect. Like, because think about it, like, today, in today's day and age, one of the biggest wrongdoings you can ever commit is to be negative. We, we just can't ever be negative. We, we always have to speak life into people. We have to be those who are just positive all the time. And frankly, it's sinful to, in some cases, it is sinful to give false expressions of positivity. Think, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity type stuff. Joel Osteen type stuff. You know, just, just hey, you know, God loves you just the way you are. You have a wonderful purpose for which you've been created for. You need to love yourself and you need to forgive yourself because only then you can find value in who you are. That kind of nonsense. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Okay, so we've, we've mentioned several now, so let's, let's look at the second part of the question. How, how is that harmful? How is that destructive? That, I'll start with Joanna's. That's destructive because... It's just not true. It's not biblical, and it's it's just arrogant, really. It's self-help. Um, it, it caters to the lusts of the flesh, right? The boastful pride of life. So, um, what about we did we never talked about one that's common? Uh, at least one. There's others, I'm sure. But lying, yeah, lying's very common, um, right? As God, as Paul writes in the early part of Romans three. Let God be found true and every man a liar. You know, lying comes out of just about everybody's mouth at some point, um, if you're honest. So, but okay, so how's lying harmful? What's, what's wrong with lying? Even if it's just a white lie. It's still a lie. Still a lie, right? So that's wrong. What's the most significant issue with lying? What's the. It's against the Ten Commandments, which is against God's. Will, yeah, and also his his law and his uh, either starts with a C or starts with an N character or nature, right? So, like, God hates lying because he's he's literally pure truth. So, like, you're never more unlike God than when you lie. That that's a that's a good way of saying it. like he's. Satan's the father of lies. God is pure truth. So lying is such a big deal. Even it's a white lie because, well, it's just contrary to your creator's very character, his very nature. Um, that in and of itself is reason not to do it. But how about practically on the horizontal level? What does lying tend to do to our relationships? Permanently. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you, you can just ruin a relationship permanently through lying. I have had many relationships ruined as a result of, of lies. Um, so I can, I can relate to that. 
not lies that I told. Well, lies that I told before coming to know Christ. Um, I ruined some relationships back in, in my adolescent days. But as a believer, I've had people lie either to me or about me, and that resulted in relationships being permanently um, severed. Uh, what other ones have you mentioned? We mentioned cussing. What's wrong with cussing? Why is that? Why is that bad? What do you think? I mean, obviously, other than the fact that it's you know sinful, and that that's in and of itself a reason not to to do something. But think about very practically, like what 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 is at stake when we speak like that? It doesn't show that you're set apart. Harms your testimony. That's exactly right. Emma. When you speak like the rest of the world, you know, Christ said to be in the world but not of the world, right? So sometimes, unfortunately, Christians, they, they want to be in the world and of the world. You know, sometimes they don't really get the um, not being of the world part of that verse uh, in terms of their lifestyle. Uh, it, you know, there's the old saying, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, um, we can only be earthly good if we're heavenly minded. Paul says, think of things above, not things of the earth. So that's, yeah, very good regarding lying. So lying, cussing, um, self-help, pride, that sort of thing. Did we miss any? Just like what Emma said, if you're constantly cussing, Emma wants to hear what you have to say. That's right. You're just like us, man. We 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 don't we don't take you seriously. Or yeah, here he goes again. Yeah, there's the Christian though. He, he's worse than all of us, right? Yeah, exactly right. Okay, number two. What were your thoughts on James's instruction that the tongue, which is a physical part of the body, can bring about spiritual corruption before God? And as a dovetail to that question. What were your thoughts about the connection between sinning with the tongue and mimicking Satan? So, what would y'all think about about some of those themes that James was getting at? Remember, think back to the second part of verse six. But do y'all ever really think about, like, I mean, you know that you know that when you commit sin that that's against God's words, against God's character, and, and that the punishment of that sin apart from Jesus Christ is eternal judgment and hell, right? We all know that. But do you ever really just stop and just kind of grapple with the thought that, you know, when I, when I use my tongue in a sinful way, a way that's overtly sinful, I'm really just acting like Satan. You know, I... You know that, right? We know that as Christians, but we don't really ever just stop and, and just kind of wrestle with it. You know, I was putting this together this week at my in-laws, and um, I was sitting upstairs just thinking, like, you know, like this is this is profound. It's so simple, but it's it's it really is profound. Um, and as believers, it should motivate us to repent and to, and to put off sinful practices of speech, right? That's what came to my mind to uh, think about. What else? Do y'all do have any comments on that particular question? It makes me think of, like, in the garden, you know, he had to shove an apple down our throat. So a little bit of, or, you know, an apple, I'm just saying, I don't know, it wasn't an apple, but... Whatever it was. Uh, I like to just, think it was an apple. Right. <laughs> just so a little seed of 
doubt with words, and that led to the fall of everything. Mm -hmm. you know, that it really only took words to bring about the spiritual corruption of all of us. And just a twisting of the like he mm -hmm. he said, you know, did, did God really say that you're not allowed to eat it? any of the tree. It's kind of that kind of that innocent, almost like Satan trying to play dumb, like, is that really what God said? Like, I, I could have been misunderstanding that, you know, and like, oh no, Satan, he didn't say that. Like, let me tell you what, what he really said. And then, it, and of course, Eve messed it up too in communicating back to Satan, because uh, he said, you know, he said we can't touch it, you know, and uh, God never said you can't touch it. He just said don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan, you know, just, just a little kind of under the rug, twisting of the words. And that, guys, that, that can be what the tongue can ultimately do if we're not careful is, you know, especially if you don't like somebody. It's easy for all of us to fall into the trap of, I really don't like this person and I kind of heard this report about them. So, I, and I really, I would really like for there to be an opportunity for me to kind of vent about the fact that I don't like this person with somebody that I'm close to. So let me take this random little nugget of what could be true or not true, but I'm going to take this little nugget here and kind of find a way to get it into a conversation so that the conversation can take on a life of its own, and then we can really vent about you know, this, this, this piece of information that may not even be true. But how often do we do that? Even as believers, we all can fall victim to that. So very good, Samantha. That's a good connection. Any other thoughts before moving on to number three? Sorry? You know, I was thinking, like, you know how it says when the devil lies, he speaks his native tongue? Mm hmm When we lie, as sinners, we're kind of speaking, like, that's kind of acting like Satan. Yeah. We'll call that, like, God, and not a full world. And if you're always lying, nobody's going to trust you if you try to share the gospel with Right. Nobody's going to want to listen to you. How do I know that you're telling me the truth right now about the gospel and God and so on and so forth? That's a good application. And when you say you're Christian and you act like that, people are just going to think that it's a whole bunch of malarkey. That's right. If you act, if you claim to be a Christian, but act that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, anytime a big, prominent pastor or theologian commits a grave sin or shows that they were, you know, living a double life or something like that. You know what the unbeliever first thing they say? See, the whole thing's a joke. It's, a, it's all a sham. And that that's same thing with the tongue. Hey, that guy, that guy's a deacon of the church. That guy's a pastor of the church. And he doesn't even live out what the Word of God says. He, he knows what it says. He... he, 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 he he talks like he uh, is an upstanding follower of Jesus Christ, and yet he lives just like the rest of the world, or worse than the rest of the world. What a shame. What a shame. Well, that brings us now to number three. And uh, you know, we talked before tonight's lesson about the value of apologetics and how those in education, those, particularly I'm talking about Christian education, those who are teachers and leaders of Christian education, how they need to be proactive in confronting the, the challenges brought about by the culture. Well, I think this question really gets to the heart 
of some of those challenges you're going to hear brought against Christianity, particularly in reference to what we learned about tonight. Notice number three. The question is, how would you respond to the following challenge? So you're at, you're at your high school, you're at your workplace environment, you're on a college campus, you're with unbelieving friends or family members. Here's the challenge. They say, hey, what did you learn at Bible study? Or maybe they just stumble upon this verse. So you either tell them about what you learned from this text, or they just, for whatever reason, stumbled upon this verse from James, and they, they read it, they understand the gist of it, and they bring this challenge to you. Here's the challenge. Since the Bible teaches that it's impossible for a person to perfectly tame their tongue, then there's no point in even trying to exercise self-control over one's speech pattern in the first place. What do you say to that? Kind of the whole deal, like, let me make another example, just to bring this out. Well, if God's sovereign over who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, then why even share the gospel? Why even pray if it's all planned out by God? What's the point? So again, similar sentiment here. Ellie, you had your hand up first. What do you think? With that logic, like, like you said, it would be senseless to even like try to be like God and walk or try to be like Him. Mm-hmm. There's no point because the Bible teaches you you're never going to be able to be perfect or like God. Right. Yeah. So, no, that's good. That's, that's, I, I understand what you're saying. That's that's good. Si, did you have your hand up? That sounds like the second one. Can you repeat the second way you phrased it? Yeah, well, the second one that I phrased, it, was, it, it wasn't the question, but it was kind of a parallel question. It's the same idea. You know, this question was, you know, well, if we can't, if we can't perfectly exercise self-control over what we say, if that's what the Bible teaches, then... You know, then what the heck's the point? I'll say whatever I want to say, and I'll speak whatever I want to speak, and, and there's no issue. Same thing when those people, I don't know if it's the same kind of people, but there are a lot of people who will say, whether and some of these are self-identifying Christians, but many of which are non-believers, and they'll say, well, shoot, tell me God has predestined who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. You say God from before the foundation of the world decreed everything that would ever happen. There's no way to change that. Well, then what the heck's the point of anything? I must, you know, if he's already predestined everything, then yes, I'm a robot. Might as well not pray. If he decreed it, then that means that those that are his are going to strive to speak differently. And those that are not, won't. That's right. They'll have that argument and say, what's the point? There's mm-hmm. no point. So I would be cautioning people really check your heart if they have that argument. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I know there are people that are like that, and I just tell them, you know, that it, it, it's it's our job mm-hmm. as Christians to to live right. That's right. Both or, show a profound disrespect for the authority of Scripture, because we are both commanded to turn from our sin. You mm-hmm. can't unrepentantly embrace it. And you also can't forsake the Great Commission commandment to go out and tell others and make disciples of all the nations. Mm-hmm. That's something that we're told to do regardless of his hand over it all. That's right. That's right. You know, when I think about the challenge of that nature, there's a lot of both of what y'all said, 100% agree. Like, 
Scripture, time after time after time, commands us to live a certain way. And the whole point of James, true saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. Like James is not concerned with a perfect life. He's, he's concerned with what is the pattern of your life look like in each of these areas. So as Alan said, if you're, if you're Christ, if you belong to God, if you are the one who he's chosen to save from before the foundational role, then your life is going to look a certain way. Um, but you know what I think about, so I'll get to you after I finish um, this thought. It presupposes that we're saved through our good works. Because that's the, it, I think, you know what, you're right. The Bible does teach that I'm never going to perfectly exercise self-control over my tongue. The Bible teaches that I'm going to fall short of the glory of God. I'm not even going to be able to keep the two most simple commandments, which is to love God with all of my being and love my neighbor as myself. You're right, friend. I can't do those things. And in fact, in Galatians 3, 24 and following, Paul says the law exists to, to serve as a tutor to point you to the Savior. The fact that you can't do it is the whole point. God wants you to see that. You're a sinner. You can't do this. Only my grace can save you. Only the gospel can. And it's only the gospel that will enable you to live out a life, again, a life trajectory of Christ-like conduct and living. Not perfection, but of direction. I'll just say this too before I get to you, Si. Go read Romans 6. Because this very challenge, you know, he, he says... Um, I'm going to read it so I don't butcher it because I care too much about the text to do that. It's, it's a beautiful text. You guys need to have this text in your back pocket every time somebody comes out and tries to argue that, well, if we're saved by grace, then we can just sin and we can live however we want to live. Or if God's predestined everything, then what's the point? Or if we can't perfectly exercise control over our tongue, then you know I'll, I'll talk however I want to talk. Paul anticipates this very kind of thinking in the book of Romans. Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What's Paul saying there? He's saying this, that if you truly have understood grace, if you've truly understood your need of a Savior, your need to be changed, then your lifestyle is going to look a particular way. And again, it's largely reiterating what Alan and Samantha are saying. But you guys, when you face challenges like this, Romans 6, it's a great text to go to. But Sai, what were you going to say, buddy? I was going to say, like, not like when the last did, you still got like share the gospel. You can't just say, well, I'm saved by faith, so I'm just going to let the pe- the beasts fall where they may and see if you're going to be saved. Mm-hmm. But, like that guy, even the atheists know, is the most, if the gospel is true, it's the most unloving thing you can do to not want to share it with them. That's right. No, I love that. That's really good. That's really, really good. Well, to me and James, you know, what he's explaining, and you've thoroughly explained, you know, what's going on, what he's trying to encourage. Right. 
he's trying to encourage us mm-hmm. that don't give up. It's it's this is the battle that we endure mm-hmm. until the time that God says it's finished. You know, you're not going to be able to completely conquer this, but it's it's God has. You know, He gives you the ability. You strive for it. You, Absolutely. And that's why He's saying, you know, don't be double-minded over. You know, you be, you focus and you 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 rest in the fact that God knows exactly who you are, where you're at, and and you you strive. You know, because there there are times when I am angry and I say things hurtful things, things that, that cut to the quick. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I'm like, man, I wish that there was a sign that just said, ding, 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 get away, get away. You're fixing to go down a path. You don't, and, you know, and I see the path, I see it coming, and I still. And then later on, I, I'm like, man, what is wrong with me? Why, why do I struggle with this? But I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know. I, I, I don't. I don't want to because we're we're around the the world every day, right? And we're bombarded with that speech. I mean, around people, not not to blame other people for no, our I actions, but you're hearing it, right? And before you know it, you know it wears off, and you'll say something that you normally wouldn't say, and it's like, okay. And and praise the Lord for repentance and, and His yeah. grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Because, I mean, like I said, I, I struggle with it. And that whole point, like verse 8, James is trying to say, like, this is a battle. This is this is, this is universal to mankind. This is the reality. You need Christ. Um, still, fight it. Repent. And your life should look a certain way as a believer. But know, know this. It's going to be a battle forever. Um, and that's, that's part of the consequences of being sinners living in a fallen world. So... Well, number four, again, um, I, I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself here uh, in my contributions to this question. But number four, how should the impossibility of rendering perfect obedience to God, whether through one's speech or in any other facet of life, how should the impossibility of rendering perfect obedience to God lead to thankfulness for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I want you to meditate on this for the rest of the night as we prepare for corporate worship tomorrow. Um, on the Lord's Day, are you personally thankful for the gospel? So the, the second part of this question, that's for your own personal reflection as you go to bed tonight, as you pray, as you think before you fall asleep. I want you to really ask yourself in your heart of hearts before the living God, Lord, am I really thankful for the gospel? Does it matter to me really that even though I fall short every single day, that you've provided every provision that I could ever need to be forgiven of my sins and to have a relationship with you and to, by the outworking of the Holy Spirit, to be made like Christ through my conduct. So that second part of the question is for you to consider before the Lord, but the first part of the question really is just, how does how does the reality of our constant battle with sin make you grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the essence of the question. How does your struggle with sin the weightiness of your battle, whatever it is, whether it's through your use of speech or through a particular lifestyle, behavior, how did those battles and the weight of your sin lead you to praise God for the gospel, which is what we're going to be doing tomorrow at church. It's what we do every Sunday at church. It's what we do here, Thursday nights. Whenever I fall, 
And what I mean is, is the things that whenever I mess up and, you know, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, flippantly because it's, mm -hmm. I'm talking about things that, that really, that really trouble me. And whenever I, I fall back into something that I, I, I know is in my past and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm feeling broken and I'm feeling empty and I'm thinking, how, how can I be a Christian and struggle with this? How can these things still bother me? I mean, Karen told me one day about that, that song, the steadfast love of the Father, that, that you know, that His mercies are new every morning. right. And then we, you know, when that song was playing the next day, it just broke my heart because it reminds me that that's what the gospel is. His mercy is new. He's right. He, he knows he knows the struggles that we have. He knows the troubles that we endure. And the gospel, you, your question about the gospel is just the peace and the joy to know that we have a Savior that endured this for us so that we can carry on, you know, and not lose hope because if you really look at yourself in the mirror, you realize how unworthy you are. So to me, the gospel is the the shield that we carry, you know. That's right. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. Any other thoughts before we close in prayer? Been a great discussion, and hopefully, the lesson was thought provoking and encouraging for you. Um, challenging in some ways, I know it was for me. So, are you going to say something? Look, I'm trying to remember the exact word, but I heard someone say when I was in Kentucky, forget the whole conversation. But they're talking about salvation. And the guy said, no one has ever brought salvation by man. Christ has always been the one who brings people salvation. Mm -hmm. Man might lead, like show them the scriptures, but Christ is always the one who opens their eyes. That's exactly right. Man, that's, couldn't, couldn't say it any better myself. Um, you know, I think that Jonah 2.9 the God of my salvation, you know, my salvation is God. God is the one who saved me. Just like he saved Jonah from that uh, big fish, and of course that pointed to Christ, we know that had a redemptive historical significance, but like, just as God rescued Jonah, so also does he rescue us from himself and from our sin as well. So, it was very, very good. Um, of course, you know, Christ came as to die as a ransom for many. He says it himself. I, I'm the one who provides you with salvation. Um, so. Well, great, guys. Great time of discussion afterwards. And um, let me close this in prayer. I hope you have a great Lord's Day with your friends and family tomorrow. And Lord willing, we'll be back on our normal Thursday night rotation come this next week as we finish the sixth section of. James, um, it's been a great study. So let's pray, and then we'll we'll be dismissed. Father, Lord, we ask that you would provide us with a healthy reverence for your holy character, and that the testimony of our lives would reflect the reality that we are your adopted sons and daughters in Christ. As we've seen from your word tonight, one of the greatest sources of humanity's corruption is the tongue. And Lord, if we just look to social media or popular level entertainment or just our workplace environments or our schools or our teams and associations that we're a part of in the secular world, Lord, we see that the tongue's corrupting nature 
really just authenticates the truthfulness of everything that James is warning us about at this point in his letter. So, Father, we pray that for those who are in our immediate spheres of influences who do not know you, that they would see our lifestyles and that they would see how they reflect that though we all, that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we all have our struggles with sin. Father, our lifestyle trajectory is one that is growing into conformity to the likeness of Christ, that we are putting off the flesh and putting on the things of the Spirit, and that also includes how we exercise our tongue. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening to this lesson tonight, whether in person or on the recording that does not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, my prayer, Father, is that you would you would help them, Father, to see that they are without hope apart from Christ. And God, that only through Christ can they be forgiven of their sin, but also, Father, only through Christ can they begin to honor you with their lives, starting with their pattern of speech. And for us who are yours tonight, Father, for those of us who are here tonight, for those who are listening to this lesson, Lord, I just pray that for the believers, you would encourage them that though we are called to model a lifestyle pattern that brings glory to you and and that you enable us to do so by your spirit, that even when we do fall short, your grace, your mercy, and your love superabounds to us. The blood of Christ has cleansed us from our sin. You've adopted us into your heavenly, eternal family. Father, would that be our joy? Would that be what motivates us to to live the kind of lives you've called us to be as your ambassadors. So, Father, I I just thank you for this time tonight and pray that all that we've studied would not just go in one ear and out the other or not just be reduced to head knowledge, but, Father, that it would lead to us growing in our heartfelt obedience to your word. And, Father, as we prepare to gather with your people tomorrow at our local churches, there are several local churches represented in this study, Father, I pray that we would all strive to magnify you through the words that we sing and say at that gathering, through how we think and focus on the lessons in Sunday school and Sunday morning service and even Sunday evening service for those of us who will attend. And God, that our time with our families would be one in which you are being celebrated from the head of the household down to the youngest child. We love you, God, and thank you for your rich love that you have bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus, for we know that we could only love you because you first loved us. And that is I so beautifully put earlier, Father. Christ is our Savior. We did not save ourselves. Would that result in great worship from our hearts tomorrow and all the days of our life. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together with your Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. Amen.